You wish to end this? Yeah. You wish to go home? Then we must stop fighting amongst ourselves and face it the price for it may be dear. And I, for one, would rather die than to spend my life in hiding. The sheriff calls us outlaws. But I say we are free. And one free man defending his home is more powerful than 10 hired soldiers. But we ain't got nothing to eat! What do we need that the forest cannot provide? We have food, wood for weapons. We'll find safety and solace in our trees. Yeah, but what about our kin? Shutters taking all they got, too. And by God, we take it back. That was Robin of Loxley, played by Kevin Costner, rallying the poor and outlawed of Nottingham to build a new forest hideout for themselves in 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This week, we fast forward a few hundred years to today as one woman also seeks to build her own, more modern sanctuary for her and her family in this week's review, Herself. Plus, da-da-da-da! Stop it. Sorry. We get shaken and stirred from Bratislava to Afghanistan in this week's What Have You Been Watching? We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. And films are better than people. I'm Sam. And I'm Lawrence. (laughs) I'm home! I'm home! (laughs) You are strange, Christian. Sue, what have you been watching this week? I have been watching The Living Daylights from 1987. Which is a James Bond film. That's going to be the first of quite a few times I do that. I can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about a James Bond film. I mean, properly, rather than, you know, using just, just a clip or something. Aren't you excited? Well, yeah, I mean, we would have recorded a review of No Time to Die... A yeah. few months ago, if it wasn't for a pandemic. Yeah, for the, the end way. of the world. Really need like a James Bond type to come in and sort of save the world from a pandemic or something. Don't you? Sorry about that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm quite excited because I've, I've watched a James Bond film, so I'm quite overexcited and giddy to talk about it. So I'm, I'm quite excited, <laughs> looking forward to it. Uh, I'm not going to go into my whole uh, history of James Bond because that would just take too long. But the short answer is James Bond is something that I think in our family we've, grown up watching it was very uh, important in forming my connection with film bond is a very big subject with things good and bad but i think we're going to try and focus on the film specifically itself the living daylights the reason we watched it is because i was going to go and watch it at the prince charles cinema they're currently doing a like a bond retrospective where they're showing a, a bunch of bond films and the living daylights is one of the bonds that's a bit closer to my heart, and so I thought, oh, that'd be a great experience, go to the Prince Charles, and then it, it sold out. There are big new releases, and things at the, the upcoming Sundance Film Festival that haven't sold out, but a little screening of, of The Living Daylights, a Bond film that I thought me and four other people like enjoyed in the world, that's the, the rest of my family. film, I think that's... <laughs> 
That's quite a narrow-minded view to have, to be honest. The Living Daylights, I just thought it was a bit niche. I mean, I know everyone would turn, out, turn up for Goldfinger or something, or probably one of the like the later ones, the Casino Royales, but I didn't think loads of people would turn up for The Living Daylights. It's a Bond film, you know. You don't have to be into film to like Bonds. No, there but... There are plenty of people that will only go to the cinema to watch James Bond. Yeah, but one from 1987. It just seemed a bit strange. I just thought I was the only one that liked it. Or there was only a few of us that really liked it, but apparently lots of people do. That's all. Or the Dalton fans. There's, the Dalton fans. there's more Dalton fans than you realise. Uh, which does bring us on to the, the film itself, which stars uh, Timothy Dalton as uh, super spy James Bond. It's his first one. He was taking over after Roger Moore, who was the longest serving Bond at that at that point. Yeah, seven uh, films, I think. And all oh, bit of a Bond fan. I didn't realise I was doing a podcast such a Bond anorak. That's great. Oh well I've just done my research. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was much back and forth about who was going to be the actor, but Timothy Dalton ended up taking it. He'd been a long favourite of uh, some of the producers for a while. And, and and he took it over to start a kind of new era of Bond. It's interesting the era that it's in, because it's nineteen eighty seven. So the Cold War is winding down a little bit, and Bond is a bit of a Cold War hero. I mean, he is a Cold War hero, I mean, he's created in the Cold War. So we're starting to get up to that point where Bond has to slightly reassess himself, and in some ways I'd say this is a bit of a reassessment for Bond, or a bit of a restart. Well, this is the last James Bond film set in the Cold War, isn't it? It is, because after this, uh, the next the next film didn't really have anything to do with the Cold War, and I think was released after the Berlin Wall fell, so... Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because it was released in 1989, so actually when they were writing the script, then it would have still been the Cold War, yeah. but... License to Kill, which followed The Living Daylights two years later, they wanted to make a film that was more an eighties action film. That's that is exactly right. So what? But what's this one about? What's The Living Daylights about? Do you want to give them uh, a rundown? Well, yeah. If you haven't seen it, uh, sort of James Bond assists a fellow double O in Bratislava, who is helping a General Koskov defect to the West. However, when Koskov is safe in the UK, he is kidnapped by men working for arms dealer Brad Whitaker. The Secret Service thinks it's head of the KGB, General Pushkin, who has taken Kozkov back to Moscow, and Bond is sent to Tangiers via return to Bratislava, Vienna, and finally Afghanistan to get to the bottom of it all. That girl must be very talented. Shoot up. Believe me, my interest in her is purely professional. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. Two of our men are dead. Koskov's name to you. Then I must die. Eliminate him. Kill him! That's the second one. (laughs) But no, it it sort of ends in in Afghanistan. Obviously during the the Russia versus Afghanistan war. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Yeah, but we'll probably get to that in a bit. Just just very quickly, I mean, anyone that's completely clueless about this stuff, James Bond, British Secret Service agent, gets in adventures usually to save the world, all the while drinking vodka martinis, getting in fights, having sex with lots of beautiful women. That's basically what his head up is. Was that necessary? Was that necessary? No. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to... To all those people living under a rock for the past <laughs> 50 years. I really love Living Daylights. I think there's lots about it where it is a lot of the stuff that Bond 
can do best. I don't know if it's the best overall Bond film, but I think it's a really solid, like, swing at it. And I think there's lots of good things that it does right. The, the main thing I really like, I mean, you listing all those different locations, I, I love the, the massive scope of the plot. Like, it, it takes you to all these different, like, locales and these different action set pieces that have, like, different feels to them. Like, um, the opening on Gibraltar is a really good, like, Bond opening where he has to kind of go after a, a, a KGB assassin on a training mission that goes wrong. Yeah, just to point out, aren't you describing most Bond films? Isn't that just an expectation that they take place all around the world? And there is a diversity to Well, yeah, the, but that's what makes it a good Bond film. I mean, that's what makes it... A, yeah, yeah that's, what, that's what makes it a Bond film. <laughs> It's but no, but it's good. I, I think that, but but the different feels to things. Yeah, that I think are, that's, that are, that are, that I think, I think that's fair. Yeah. Like I think the bit the, the the bit at the beginning in Bratislava has a kind of more espionage. Maybe okay, it's not quite John le Carre. Okay, but it's got a more like espionage le Carre feel to it. Then you've got like later on in the film the bigger like action set pieces like in Afghanistan that feel more like high octane via some mountains in uh, in Bratislava as well though. that's right a great like use of the car as well Bond's gadget laden car is sometimes quite underused but I think in this they they find like a really I think that chase sequence with the uh, Czechoslovakian police is really really good really well utilized I thought this was a pretty weak viewing for me I did like The Living Daylights. I think it is one of the better Bond films. I think, like pretty much every Bond film, it's dated quite badly. And actually, I think some of the set pieces are really good. Uh, the yep, the opening in Bratislava with, as you said, like it's got the hallmarks of Le Carre. There's a good sniper scene in it. Uh, I actually think, yeah, there's some really good dialogue between uh, James Bond and Saunders, who is his contact in Bratislava, I think that's kind of quite interesting. And that kind of relationship develops a little bit later in the film. I think it's quite an interesting plot because basically General Koskov, who they help defect, is basically playing both sides. Mm. So he's playing the Russians and the British. He's quite an interesting character. He is. I quite I quite like him, uh, Koskov. I think he's a good villain because I think that shows you a bit where the series is because he's trying to play the british and the russians off against one another his old boss pushkin uh he's trying to get bond to kill and he's doing that by actually having bonds friends and allies killed and stuff he's playing two two sides off so actually in this the ussr and the, the british are more allied than they were previously. And it was at the point in the Cold War where things maybe weren't quite as heated. Point well, it was the Cold tipping War. towards the West, wasn't it, it? Yeah, it was tipping towards the West and there was a sense of... The Soviet Union was breaking up. Yeah, that the Soviet Union was breaking up. So perhaps there's more that sense that, yeah, maybe perhaps Russia isn't going to be the, the big enemy forever. The big bear has had his teeth uh, removed. Actually, what's interesting here is that the villain... Uh, is Koskov, who's a corrupt general. He ends up smuggling diamonds, trying to buy a large amount of opium, which perhaps suggests that that the uh, real fear that in the in the eighties is uh, is is drugs rather than the Russians. But also, really, the the head honcho, the the person behind it all, is this American arms dealer, uh, Brad Whitaker, played by uh, Joe Don Baker. 
He so, later appears as another character in Goldeneye. Yeah, but don't think about it too much. It's all right. Oh, he comes back. <laughs> they re- they do a lot of that in Bond. Another inconsistency in the series, really. It's, there's, it's, there's not really canon, all right? All right come on, if you are another actor. What's he got <laughs> against the producers? Maybe, maybe they really liked him. He be, he's great in Goldeneye and stuff. Oh, you! If you want to do this, why don't you go back and watch some more Marvel films or something <laughs> and join all the dots there? Those things are supposed to like line up better. So Whitaker's the villain in this, and he's an arms dealer. And I kind of felt like the suggestion here is, yeah, that it's not big governments that are going to be the enemies. It's perhaps the military-industrial complex. Perhaps it's, you know, it's arms, it's drugs. The greater threat is from uh, criminals and war profiteers rather than the the governments themselves. Yeah, and uh, Pushkin ends up becoming more of a sympathetic character and, and appears a bit more convivial by the end. Uh, I really like Pushkin in this as well. I think he's great. Yeah, played by John Rhys-Davies, who was obviously Gimli in the Lord of the Rings yeah. films. He found a bit more fame uh, later on his, in his career. Oh, and of course he's uh, Salah in Indiana Jones. Yeah, I think he's great in these. I think he, he's kind of talked about by Bond as being quite tough and quite ruthless. He's quite a good spy and he manages to talk his way out of like bad scenarios and ends up being a good ally to Bond. He's quite clever. Comes up with some good plots to try and get Yorgi. Yeah, I thought you could do a good comparison to Carla from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This idea, <laughs> which again is kind of like these uh, Le Carre links, but yeah, I, well, that's what I, when they were first talking about Pushkin and they were kind of building him up, I because I, I didn't have a very good memory of Living Daylights, so I was like, oh, maybe like Pushkin is this big figure in the KGB that's sort of very mysterious and and yeah, it's sort of very devious, and he's always kind of. Being one step ahead of the uh, the British Secret Service, but no, he's uh, no, he's. I mean, it's a James Bond film. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting, but yeah. So I think. Look, what we've talked about is like there are there is a good array of characters within this, which isn't true for all Bond films. Yeah, I've and, and actually, I think Dalton brings a gravitas to this film that was much needed because mm-hmm. we'd just been through seven Roger Moore films. And, I mean, he had pushed it to the very end. Oh! <laughs> All those feathers on his still couldn't fly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of those lines throughout the film, it was... I mean, for me, those Roger Moore films, I'll never go back uh, and revisit. Again, that's something that we watch in our childhoods, and probably probably a lot of people have like a bit of affection for those Roger Moore films. You know, you didn't have to take them too seriously, they passed the time... He had his they own ideas. the time. He had his own ideas <laughs> of the characters, but that they're, they're, they're just they're just fluff, aren't they? They they're, they're incredibly dated, and there's no real sort of filmmaking quality to them at all, really. At least with Dalton, he kind of brings this intensity, and he wanted to make it like the original James Bond in the Ian Fleming novels. You know, he's someone who lives on the edge. He's hard drinking, smoking. And, you know, he could die at any moment. So he's kind of almost got like that that doom about him. I mean, you could never really play the Ian Fleming James Bond, as in the in the novels, someone who is kind of like a ruthless, cold spy. You've always got to bring sort of sense of humour to it, which Dalton does in certain bits. But yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a really great performance by him. I love Dalton as, as Bond. I think he is a lot colder than some of the other Bonds. I don't think he... He can do the humour bits very well. I think that the the puns fall a bit flat mm. uh, when he does them. Uh, he seems a bit... Un- They're almost too dark. Yeah, yeah, well, well, not all of them, but yeah, like one or two of them. That was that was, that was some bits that, that were really dated. He kind of comes off at certain points. 
especially when he's with Kara, the, the love interest. He comes off as like a grumpy dad on holiday, having to ferry her around, and he just gets frustrated at stuff all the time. My cello, it's at the conservatoire. Don't worry, I'll get you another in Vienna. No, we must go back for it. We have about ten minutes, if we're lucky, before they discover what's happened. I must get my cello. No way. Why didn't you learn the violin? So I don't think he brings a lot of sexiness to the role either. Just a lot of sexism. You know, the odd, the odd bit. It's, the, it's getting towards the late off the, the 80s. Bit. It's the odd <laughs> bit. I mean, Bond's just a misogynistic character. Don't, yeah, don't or try yes, and hide away from it. No, I'm not trying to hide away from it, but like, let's just focus on living days. If we, if we start getting into Bond, all right, we're going to be here all day because you hate Bond and I love Bond and we've been doing this for like 32 years, okay? <laughs> we're doing this sparring thing, okay? We can't get into it here. All right, living daylights, yeah. But yeah, okay, yeah, sure. He, yes, he is a misogynistic character. The thing is, he does the ruthlessness and the coldness of the character. Yeah. The, the the parts of him that where he he's a good spy and he's got great instincts and he's ruthless when he has to be and he's good at like throwing himself into a chaotic situation and coming out trumps and stuff. And that's what Bond does well and that's what Dalton does well. And I think it was kind of trying to be more of a gritty reboot for the 80s. Than, uh, than than the preceding Roger Moore films. Yeah. We should talk about the action set pieces because this is what, you know, it's what kind of makes James Bond James Bond, really. Mm, I think the highlight for me is maybe like the where uh, Yorgi, who's pretending to defect at the beginning, there's a ruse where he's snatched by Necros, who's the henchman of the film. He's carrying on the great tradition in Bond films of, of very tall, uh, statuesque, invincible blonde henchman yeah he looks very Aryan yes he does there's a there's a long tradition of, of them in, in in bond films and and he comes and he snatches him and it's a great like sequence because he comes into this mi6 base and captures Yorgi and, and gets away with him he makes great use of these explosive milk bottles <laughs> which are kind of a bondy gadget but then there's a great fight sequence in a kitchen and stuff, which is quite brutal. And yeah, it's he- good, good hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, I mean, my favourite set piece is in Afghanistan. Yeah, that is also really, really brilliant. So Bond and Kara get taken to Afghanistan, uh, where they're imprisoned with uh, a Mujahideen leader. The Russians don't know that he's Mujahideen, but basically they all escape together. They stay in his sort of his yeah his his palace or whatever, mm. and then they end up that that Mujahideen are doing a, a deal with the Russians. That's where they're selling. That's who they're selling the opium to, and then Bond tries to blow up or tries to deny Koskov and Whitaker getting the opium back, so they're able to to sell it on. And yeah, he he convinces the Mujahideen to sort of like rebel. And then Bond escapes on a plane with the. Uh, and initially, he tries to blow up the plane. But then he escapes on the plane with a bomb, the bomb that he put inside on it. So, yeah, it's all very chaotic, but it's really, really well delivered. And, yeah, he has his final fight with Necros on the plane. And, yeah, it's obviously no CGI. Back, it was made in 1987. So you've got these amazing stunts. Obviously not Timothy Dalton and, uh, <laughs> and the other actor. But, yeah, it looks really good. They're hanging out of an airplane. Uh, on yeah, just on the on the opium sacks, it looks incredibly realistic. Yeah, they're obviously you've obviously got this incredible look because they're flying, you know, in 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 the mountains in Afghanistan. So I really really like that. Yeah, I was really thrilled and even excited during that period. I think it's it's one of the standout Bond action pieces probably from that from that era. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, when they're when they're actually shooting a, a fight hanging out of a plane, <laughs> you know, rather than just computer generating it. 
uh yeah you can't help but feel like a little bit tense but yeah no i think that sequence is i think that stuff's great and actually sorry that um there's actually a second finale because that feels like the finale right yeah but there's a second finale of that or like a final action scene it's just not as good it feels, <laughs> it feels completely redundant because i know we've had the big action set piece I like that face-off with Whitaker, though. I do quite like it. I oh, think there's... no, I really don't. It's just because it, ugh, Bond gets kind of sent in alone. And it's like, oh, why wouldn't you just send in just a, like a squad of commandos? Or why is it just Bond sort of being stealthy about this? It just, I don't know, <laughs> and then you just get like rescued it. by a bunch of kind of Russian commandos. Yeah, the, well, the KGB kind of come in and... You probably should have, just, should have just run with that. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's <laughs> rubbish. Similarly, when the, plane, when, the, when the plane crashes... When they, they have to escape, Kara and Bond have to escape out of the plane, and they're like, there's nowhere to put the plane down. And then they get on to drive off on a highway, and they're going to go f- towards Karachi. Yeah. And they're like, he's like, oh, I know a lovely restaurant in Karachi, we can just make dinner. And it's like, why can't you just land the plane on the bloody <laughs> flea- freeway that's sitting right there? But never mind. Uh, it was a. It was because he's James. Because he's James Bond, and he got rid of the opium the only way he knows how to. Go on, do it. Da, 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 da. That's good. <laughs> Going to Afghanistan, it's uh, notable because, like Rambo Free, the Mujahideen are the heroes, they're allies. Because still at the time, even though we're talking about the Cold War was was lessening in the invasion of Afghanistan, of course we were kind of more on the the Mujahideen side. It's. It was really funny. I still. I still remember watching it post nine eleven under the war on terror. It was just like one of these strange like artifacts that Mujahideen were heroes. But I mean, again, that's that's one of the reasons that I quite like things because it's of its time, like James Bond. Yeah, because it's of its time. But because you can see how the attitudes were different. Who were the heroes? Who were the villains? Like the guy that plays uh, the 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 Mujahideen leader. He's like kind of Bond's ally, and he's a hero. He then plays the villain in True Lies in 1994 when Islamic extremists are the villains now in the 90s. And it's really, it's kind of funny that you, you have that like switch over. Wow, over like seven years. Yeah, over like seven years. Yeah, yeah that you is have really, that. really interesting. You have that like switch. Probably his character in Living Daylights, his character in True Lies, probably would have, you know, bumped into one another at some point. Um, maybe they are the same character. Maybe they are, but it's like I say, it's why I like stuff like this. I think it's, I think it is interesting to see these things as as artifacts, as uh, as, as much as anything else. That does also contain one of the the weirdest puns that bit in Afghanistan, because it's like because where we which I've never noticed before, where they say like that when they first get captured by the Mujahideen, Kara says um, like, "Oh, do you think they're going to kill us?" And Bond says, oh, don't worry, they'll save you for the harem. I was like, oh, God, why would you make that joke? That's terrible. <laughs> but you said it in a Roger Moore way. Oh. Dalton, because it's Dalton. Yeah, Dalton, so he can't make anything sexy or funny. No, but he so says... So it sounds even worse. No, but no, but he says, oh, they'll save you for the harem. Kind of in like a... <laughs> it sounds, that sounds really dark, the yeah. way you say it. They're not kill you now. Not now, how about later? Don't worry, I'll save you for the harem. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's better than sort of Roger Moore trying to play it really, really funny. Just trying to play it for last, because yeah, it's like a... It's a really dark joke. Yeah, exactly. It's really dark. But there you go. These things, they're artifacts, like we say. I mean, Kara is the Bond girl. She, she's a she's a person in the film I, I quite like, because she kind of sets the plot off. She is Yorgi's girlfriend, the, the villain's. 
and he tells her that she needs to pretend to shoot him or shoot at him to make his defection seem real but uh, or he doesn't really tell her all the details and bond is there to kill the sniper if if there is a sniper there and so he that's what sets the plot off because he sees her and she's actually in the orchestra as a cellist and he decides oh no i don't think she was a professional and he thinks something's wrong with it so he doesn't kill her but then that gets him in trouble with the brass of mi6 she was one of the elements of this that i always remembered quite fondly because i thought like her journey was really cool she seems like at certain points like quite tough and quite resourceful she's the one that she goes the mujahideen into going to save bond at the end and she has good moments like that but in this watching she i i kind of got this feeling like actually maybe she's a bit of a crap bond girl with all the worst elements because basically she's just following men around the whole time first of all obsessed with yorgi and would do anything he says even you know even be like oh hang out of this window and aim a sniper rifle at me it's like that's stupid and then she spends two days with bond and then she's like oh i just want to be with you forever and he just kind of like charms her and then tries to kind of get off with her and it's it's just and, it, and it's just like yeah she's and then koskov convinces her to betray bond oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's yeah so she's just this it's really funny because she's quite inconsistent like well she's passive initially for the first two thirds and then in the final third she ends up making decisions for herself she she you know she kind of takes the fight to the to the soviets yeah it's it's really hard because on on some level like the things we're talking about this is what i used to like about her i felt like she had a really interesting journey back and forth between these people and she was taken on this real adventure and and yeah she had all these some, some kind of growth in it but it was just funny this time around watching i kind of felt like oh is, is this a journey or is this or is she just like a little bit actually written as being quite empty-headed i'm not i don't really know this time around you're right i mean she does she does she does take charge at the end which is really good makes her like a better element of the bond girl i did think like oh, i don't know if you'd get away with this just being drawn between these men's like a moth to a flame all the time i don't think you'd get away with that no absolutely not and even in the latest Bond films, women are still treated really badly. Let's yeah, know. they are. Let's not sugarcoat it. I mean, maybe there are like worse examples of Bond girls out there, but yeah, she's still not a particularly very good character. Uh, Living Daylights is uh, a Bond film that's really close to my heart, but yeah, okay, I'll, I'll admit that on this viewing, maybe like elements of it seemed weaker. I like I say I love the the scope of it. I love all the characters. I also I really like Saunders actually. I quite like him. He's quite like a by the book guy that him and Bond end up forming a kind of are on opposite sides then form a kind of friendship and I I kind of like that. Sheriff Saunders. The operation's a success. And officially still yours. I have no intention of leaving it at that 007. I'm reporting to M that you deliberately missed. Your orders were to kill that sniper. Stuff my orders. I only kill professionals. Girl did no one end of a rifle from the other. Although it did highlight for me the fact that Bond ends up seems to most of his time with uh, Kara. He he seems to just be having a big old jolly with her and taking her to see the sights and stuff. And he's just getting letting other MI6 people sort everything out for him while he has a sort of like mini break. With this girl he's trying to like get off with. A holiday romance. A holiday romance. Exactly. That is Bond though. That is Bond. I still think it's got loads of elements of Bond that really, really work. 
and it's a great showcase for Dalton. I love the adventurous spirit of it, and I think there's some like interesting elements to it. Some of them just as an artifact, uh, some of them as its place in a Bond film. So I kind of still, even with its flaws, I kind of look past it. And it still remains one of my favourite Bonds, I think. Yeah, it's a mixed bag for me. Uh, I thought this was a pretty weak viewing, but still, a mixed bag is better than a lot of Bond films, let's be honest. Uh, I really like some of the set pieces. I think it's bookended really well by a good set piece in the beginning, you know, with a, with a, you know an escape out of Bratislava um, into the West, and then at the end, set in Afghanistan, I think all the action, or both of those action set pieces worked really, really well. Yeah, I like the sort of the Cold War undertones to it and you know how as we've discussed you can see it sort of coming out of the cold war and maybe the soviets aren't all evil as they were in uh, in much of the other the bond films before this one i think dalton is brilliant i wish he could have played bond in two more films maybe we'll get around to talking about license to kill in in another episode but yeah i think he brings a gravitas and intensity that daniel craig really captured in, mm. in his, or during his stint as Bond, uh, and yeah, I think he's. I mean, he's he seems tougher than Brosnan. He seems tougher than Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, this is a really good performance by Dalton, and um, yeah, obviously, the Bond character itself is is, is controversial to be um, to put it nicely. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's a really good ensemble of characters, and yeah, it, it passed the time. It's pretty enjoyable, but. I'm not quite sure I hold it in the same esteem as I did before we watched it again. Hasn't convinced you to become a Bond fan at all yet? No, because I used to actually... It's it's hindered that even more because I I actually thought Living Daylights was one of the better Bond films. And actually, it's got weaker now I've watched it oh, again. Oh no, my plot. Was, was ruined my great Bond villain plot to turn you into a Bond fan has has failed but actually I've got more now respect. my mountain lair is going to explode <laughs> <laughs> but I've got more respect for Dalton yeah well, you, so yeah. it's a mixed thing and it does have one of the best Bond songs let's that be honest yeah. Aha did uh, the, the, of, of Take On Me fame did The Living Daylights what a tune absolute banger Ruined by a really bad title sequence. Yeah, the the title <laughs> the title sequence is really naff. I've never noticed that before. It's just drinks, girls, guns, girls, guns, girls, guns, a drink, girls, guns, girls, guns. But then over the top of it, got this great eighties pop tune with this cool beat. Love it. Well, I guess we better take off our tuxedos now. Put our martinis away. <laughs> no, come on, we can make a season of this. A Bond film every episode. You know, could I just just take that tuxedo to the dry cleaners, get it ready for next week. Yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> Who are you? Bond, James Bond. Exercise control 007 here. I'll report in an hour. Won't you join me? Better make that too. So this week we attended the Sundance Film Festival in London and we watched a surprise film which turned out to be herself 
which is a movie that Wikipedia says was released on Amazon Prime in January, but is not available actually at the moment, but should be on Amazon Prime, uh, I I believe, in a few weeks or a few months. So you can find it there, and Sam's going to tell you the plot. Sandra is a victim of domestic abuse and escapes her violent husband with her two children. Sandra has nowhere to stay and is stuck in a hotel, paid for by the state with her kids, while she waits on the housing register. Frustrated at her situation, Sandra designs her own self-built house and brings together a motley crew from the local community to create a place she can call home. Or, as a haiku, Mum load-bearing seeks individual footing. Bring life up to code. Lovely. Was lovely. I don't know if you noticed that, but those are all building terms. Oh, excellent. Disappointing I had to explain that. I guess we're not very DIY infused, and I did have to Google a glossary of terms in order to, to research that, that poem. But that also, it's getting to the point of your haikus where I'm just not listening anymore. So brilliant, brilliant. Why? Why do I even try? Why do I even try? I, they're they're one. They're part of the whole process of the critical thing. They're the, they're for the audience. They're not for me. Yeah, but you could still enjoy them. You know, they're they. Can't you appreciate my creative output into the world? Yeah. Well, if I was more of a D, DIY enthusiast, then maybe I would have got them. Yeah, and you would have appreciated the poem more. Well, yeah. okay. Maybe, maybe you could research for next time what I'm going to do a haiku on, and then you'll appreciate the poetry more or something. What, next time we watch a film about a self-build? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is a little bit specific. Uh, here's a clip. What can I do for you? I want to build a house. You see, if you lend me the money and let me use a site, then I could have that built for me and my kids. I'm really sorry. I can't help you with this. What are we doing, Sandra? Do you think this is good for the girls? I've seen a counsellor. We could try and make it work. I want to fix him, you know? I know. But there are some people you just can't. I have designed a house that costs just 35,000 euros to build. Sandra, why didn't you ask me? Your mother was far more than a cleaner to me. She was a friend. It's land going to waste. Use it. Build a house. For you and your girls. Yeah, so we should say that uh, when we went to this surprise film, it was introduced by one of the actors, Harriet Walter. Yeah, that was a that was a really nice surprise. I've spoken on the podcast before about why it's it's really nice to go to film festivals like this, and little surprises like that are one of the really nice things. I know it's not something that is open to everyone. We 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 live in London. It's a very London uh, focused thing. But it is still really special when you go to a screening like this. And, uh, I mean, particularly we had no idea what we were going to see. And then you get to see, you know, one of the actors or one of the creative team. It makes it really, really special. Yeah, and this was definitely a labour of love for her. She definitely talked about it very emotionally. She talked about the pre-production. She talked talked about the filming. She talked about how the, the film basically started from nothing. She was living with Claire Dunn who plays Sandra in the film. Yeah, Claire w- was staying with her yeah. because she was a struggling writer and th- they knew each other. And so, she, 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 yeah, she was just staying with her temporarily while she was trying to find uh, her own home, uh, which is ki- weirdly kind of what the film was about as well. Uh, yeah, and then through her connections, they ended up getting the film made. Yeah. 
And it sounded like it was a fairly quick process. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's only sort of one person's story about it. But actually, like, it sounded from from writing a script to going to pre-production to filming, it all happened pretty quickly. But the reason that we haven't seen it is because they wanted this film to be in... Well, they wanted this film to be in cinemas. But even though it did get a, a release on Amazon in the United States, I think... Okay. Um, and so it was at the last Sundance Film Festival in 2020, but now it's back again to, and I think they're trying to relaunch it so that, um, and it will be in cinemas, I think, in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Or it's, I think it might be on Amazon. I'm not sure. I, it's a bit unclear, but uh, anyway. So what did you think of this? Well, it's a pretty harrowing film in parts. It's yeah. a film about domestic abuse, and what's really good is that it doesn't skirt the issue. So, for example, uh, I, Tonya, which was a film with Margot Robbie uh, made a few years ago. I think it was around um, 2017. One of the criticisms that I heard from that was that there is domestic abuse within that film, but it's an issue that isn't really gone over very much. And there was, an, there was a feeling from some critics that they breezed over it all too easily. This doesn't happen in herself. No. The opening scene is extremely difficult to watch and I think it just kind of comes out of nowhere because the opening of the film is with Sandra and her two kids and they clearly all very harmonious they all get on really really well Sandra looks like an amazing mum they're kind of dancing around and they're in this kind of really happy place and then Gary comes in her husband and yeah what follows is incredibly disturbing it's a it's 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 a brutal opening. It kind of catches you unawares. I mean, I know that the the way that we saw it, we weren't really sure what we were going to see. But I mean, it was it really draws you into the film right away because it's a it's unpleasant viewing. It's it's a, and the way that it's shot, it, it's a really effective piece of filmmaking and is demonstrative of what I think is really good cinematography throughout the film. I'll be in in kind of different ways throughout the film, but like. The, the scenes of domestic violence and the scenes of PTSD that um, Sandra feels after the after the incident, it's it's all shot in this really like claustrophobic, really like fast paced editing shots to kind of get that feeling of panic, that 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 feeling of being trapped, the kind of the nightmare of going through something like that. It's it's some really effective filmmaking, if not a very difficult watch not just the cinematography but the sound effects yeah they increase the sound of her heart beating and she kind of has panic attacks repeated throughout the film whenever she has to see Gary because this is one of the most harrowing things about it that she has to go and see him once a week to drop her kids off yeah and I can't even imagine going through that every single time just to you know having to see this person that's completely wrecked your life and yeah, giving you sort of permanent psychological damage. It's one of the many ways I think that the film is emphasising that this is a a person that the system has failed, it, it, or it's certainly failing. It, it, if not completely failed her, it's certainly failing her in a lot of very key ways. Although the state can support her by getting giving her a place to live and giving her assistance with uh, any legal problems, guidance with any legal problems, she has to work you know, three different jobs just to survive. She has to constantly commute between several different locations and it's just not suitable for her girls. She has no life outside of just trying to make ends meet. For someone that's been through that and and still having to have contact with her abuser, it, it's a pretty severe condemnation of the way that the system uh, treats women 
that have that have been in this situation. Yeah, but it does get more inspirational after that. Yeah, I don't think we should make it out that it's a kitchen sink drama that perhaps has no hope and it's all despair. After she settles a little bit, she kind of comes up with a plan of what to do. And in Ireland, there's this huge housing crisis. It's really expensive to get anywhere, and this isn't just a problem with Ireland, but it's really difficult to get a council house. There's so much demand. And so she goes on the internet and she finds out a way that she can build her own place for around €35,000. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's... it's, I didn't really see it going that way. Again, this is one of the benefits of going into a film completely blind. Because if I'd seen a trailer for this, this would have been included. But actually, there's this just one moment where I think she kind of decides to do it, or she Googles, you know, oh, what if I build a house? And then all of a sudden, this film goes into a completely different direction. And this is her goal. This is what she tries to achieve. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to go, go, like stay on the point too much. But yeah, we're people that know what we're going into most of the time. So to have something that's a complete surprise is... If you, if you haven't done it in a while, it can be a really great way to, to watch a film. I mean, overall, I really, really loved this. And the funny thing is, is that if I had seen a trailer for this, I would have probably never watched it. But I'm really glad I did, because I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I think it's not usually my kind of film. I think we'll get into it in a bit, but there is a certain sickly sweetness to stories like this that that can come through. But overall, I found it deeply moving. It could have fallen into unoriginal territory, but I think the jumping off point, the concept of building and owning your own home was something I found really, really interesting about the film. And I think having that as a a circle around how you tell this story, I found really, really engaging. And it's backed up by just a phenomenal cast of of people, both at the forefront and the supporting people as well. And I I was really moved and really inspired by it. I think it was a wonderful film. I quite liked it. I think there are problems with the script. So what happens is that the reason that she can build this self-built house is because she's a cleaner for this doctor. And it's not uh, revealed straight away, but it turns out that uh, Sandra's mother used to be a cleaner for this woman as well. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the doctor, who's Peggy, played by Harriet Walter, who introduced the film, she suddenly decides to give Sandra this plot of land uh, and she's going to loan Sandra the money. It's like, oh... Well, that's that's happened all quickly. That's very that's very convenient. Uh, he is part of the plot. I mean, I mean, I don't know whether we're getting them. into minor issues or slightly nitpicking. Yeah, you're right. It is part of the plot. Had to suspend my disbelief for that. And then there are three or four moments over the course of the film where I had to do it again. Yeah, and that's where for me problems lie. No, I, 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 I think that's, I do think that's fair enough because I think that it does move the story along, and, and it's a really great experience. I think it was a really great story that really affected me. But yeah, there are those leaps, and there are definitely bits that kind of stick out like a sore thumb, where it feels like they're really trying to telegraph something to you rather than just finding a way to organically let it come out of nowhere. Some bits, like, I think some of the twists and the turns, the way they kind of knock her down and then to build her up again, some of the uses of music in it as well. It, it does it does club you around the head a little bit. Um, I mean, it didn't really bother me it, when I was watching it because I felt that so much of it was so good that the more saccharine bits or the more clunky bits actually just faded and just didn't didn't really matter as much because there were so many like good performances and the film was was really making me think so i i really didn't i really didn't mind those clunky bits too much yeah 
I mean, you mentioned the music. So one of the things about being a director is tone management. You've got to keep a consistent tone yeah. all the way through the film. Now, we were told at the beginning of the film how low budget it is. It is a low budget film. But during one of the moments where they're self-building the house, a song called Titanium by David Guetta plays. <laughs> which is a dreadful song. It is dreadful. But this is quite a natural and authentic film. And that montage is completely ruined by that piece of music. They're trying to do this sort of very like gentle and almost spontaneous thing. And then to have this like huge piece of electronic music come in. And it just completely took me out of the film. And I thought, who has come to this decision to make it? And also, yeah, it's a low-budget film. But suddenly, they decide to use like one of these songs that is, is huge. It's everywhere. I mean, it's a few years old now. But it's kind of like complete radio on fodder. Yeah, and I just thought this is this isn't this isn't right. Who's who's made the decision? Now I don't know whether they they were having to rush the edit, or it got to a point where they were like, okay, we need to have the, you know the director and the editor or the the music supervisor said, okay, we we need a piece of music here, and we haven't got much time. But it's just such a mistake for me. And also they use another song called The Killers again, like quite a mainstream indie pop band. And it just doesn't match at all. And I just thought, this is such a basic error that they could just avoid. Yeah, it's, I, I, I can't really argue with that. Other than the fact that, like I say, I mean, I don't think it was bothering me as much because I think there are loads of loads of things it, it manages to do right. It's a film about, like, a, a single mum with two kids, like, struggling to kind of make her way in the world and trying to find a place for herself and trying to find a place for her family and somehow it never felt even with that poor use of music uh it never felt so obstructively cheesy that, that i was taken out of it i just didn't really feel that at all i think loads of moments are handled really well like when her like daughter doesn't want to go to see her her dad and the kind of consequences that come out of that, that did feel a lot more organic. Exactly. That felt like that was handled really, so really it well. Ruin, ruin that. I mean, yeah. I, I know. I did. I didn't know whether they were trying to make you maybe make it feel like the kind of music that they would have actually been listening to on, on the, the radio. Yeah, on the building site. <laughs> well, that's just so, a bizarre reason. I don't know. I don't know. It's funny that I, I felt that there were other bits in it. Like I said, that the way that they knock her down only to build her up again and. Then in the end, they're starting to like tie up all the knots and everything a bit yeah. too neatly. And I mean, and... there's an inclusion of a character right towards the end of the film that hasn't been in it very much, and this character is a hugely pivotal part. I think it would be wrong for us to say what happens, but it, again, it feels like such a, an error in the script for this character to come out of nowhere and suddenly deliver this piece of information. I just felt that's like, again, the, it's tone management. It just kind of completely comes out of nowhere. Well, I didn't mind that so much because the thing is, is that that character had been through their own experience that mirrored Sandra's. And I thought that contrasting their two experiences was powerful and was another very powerful moment in the film. But yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I think there might have been a better way to handle the uh, exposition that, that they deliver. I mean, it's maybe too dialogue-heavy at times. You, you know, show, don't tell is, like, one of the most basic ideas yeah. of, of filmmaking. And I think maybe this this could have been applied here. I mean, you said you liked the cinematography. I think that's something yeah. that I... Yeah, I really liked it. I was a bit unconvinced about. Again, because it's a very low-budget film, I think they had to make quite a few scenes quite quickly. Yeah. So I remember watching one scene when there's a group of them who have started building their house, and they're all sitting there together... And there's quite a funny moment. There's a couple of funny lines thrown about, but it's all yeah. done in one take. 
and the camera is kind of like moving or shifting about. I don't understand why they didn't use a few edits or they didn't fix the camera. And I just think they had to shoot it very, very quickly. And again, that scene could have been a little bit better. Again, it's just that sort of like technical execution that would have made it a lot stronger, but it's maybe like a slight nitpick and maybe they did use multiple angles and it didn't quite work or it didn't have the authenticity, but yeah, again, I wasn't wasn't as big on the cinematography as, as you were. I think there could have been a temptation to make it look a lot more shinier than it than it could have actually been. And although there are moments of lightness, and I think that the unhappiness and, and, and joy in the cinematography wants to capture that, it, it always felt like there were there were really good moments where they captured the the greyness and how how stretched she felt and how busy she was and how how impossible her life was living in these places where she was constantly being rejected and trodden down and and I think they managed to communicate that with the cinematography. I do think the editing was really good. Yeah, yes, I mean I I think that the the scenes of of her panic attacks and the domestic violence were perhaps the most arresting in terms of the cinematography but i think it was it was good throughout oh, i thought they were the strongest moments yeah especially yeah. between claire dunn who plays sandra and ian lloyd anderson who plays gary i just thought they were they were tremendous i thought the intensity and the yeah. oh, the fear the dread going like I, even i was feeling that really uh whenever they were they were together i think that this is a good film I, I liked it and i've probably talked too much about the the i feel that the negativity or the errors in it but that was two incredible actors really, really delivering in those in those moments. I think in general the cast was really, really amazing as well. Claire Dunn, who as Sandra, who's who's not very well known, was just like brilliant, absolutely captivating. Conliff Hill that plays the builder that helps her out. Better known as <laughs> better known as Varys from uh, Game of Thrones. I knew I recognised him from somewhere, and it was only actually this evening when you told me who he was. I I know I, I knew I knew him from somewhere, and I knew I liked him from somewhere, but I, I had no idea who. It well, was. he has hair in this, which he didn't have in Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, Harriet Walsh was great. She was very like stern, but she she had this real powerful connection that grew over the film with Sandra. Again, maybe a little bit of a plot hole that it was, it was kind of like well. You're sort of treating her like a like an employee, and then suddenly it's kind of revealed. Oh, I knew your mum, and she was very she was more than a, just a friend to me. And it's like you didn't seem that warm to her earlier on, and I, I feel like that could have been communicated better. But it didn't really matter. I, I think there are these holes that are in it, but just none of them seem to bother me because everything about it was so top class and it was so engaging. The thing I I, I thought was most interesting was the was the house building. In it, owning a home is a religion in this country, and as a political idea, it, it's really interesting. Um, do we need to own a home? What does it do to someone that owns a home? You know, psychologically and and their place in society, the advantages, the disadvantages, and maybe we didn't go too deep into exactly what it takes to do this. And uh, of course, there, for the story to work, as you said, there are plenty of magic leaps, like you know, meeting a builder that wants to help her out having some friends in a squat um in a in a life that's all too busy that are going to come and like help her you know the doctor basically kind of gifting her everything but it's still a really engaging concept you know i think the way that we view house owning is going to change over the over the the next few years and i i think that that's still that vision of it as independence as as kind of as a goal for how she can make a kind of 
uh, home for her and her kids uh, w- was really interesting. I-, I wasn't really sure where where the film kind of came down in terms of politically. There's left wing ways that you can view the film, like the system has failed this person and needs uh, building up. There's the kind of the community of the disenfranchised and the and the multicultural come together as a kind of you know uh, a utopian community to help this person you know b- build her house and stuff it's but is it also kind of right wing i mean this is a story about self-reliance crafting the thing itself yeah the rich helping the poor rather than the state helping the poor it's it's kind of a bit could be a bit one nation tory you could see it it's non-reliance on the state which is inefficient and the, the system of welfare is inefficient y- yeah so i think it's kind of interesting that i i, I kind of saw both those angles in it yeah, altogether, all I mean, I don't think that everyone's going to respond well to this film. I think a lot of people will find it ultimately too saccharine or feel a bit too much like something that they've seen before. But I thought it was a really powerful, effectively made film. It's just really unusual for me to respond to a film like this in this way. It, um, I found it exceptionally powerful uh although it, it's it's an irish film so while not strictly british is something that a lot of people in this part of the world can relate to uh, i think it was yeah. very effectively shot i think it's quite a small film but a really exceptional experience a really exceptional drama uh and with a great cast to back it up yeah i, I agree i think it was powerful i just think it could have been a special film I feel with one more draft or one more rewrite to tighten up the script, then it could have been a real gem. I think the ending is, is fairly controversial and a bit needless in a way. Yeah, um, it how, is. Yeah, but you're right. There are strong performances all the way through. And while it might be a bit on the nose, it doesn't shy away from a topic that can be really difficult to film. There is inspiration to be found in, in Sandra's struggle. And the way she brings people together is well-crafted. It's certainly got like under my skin as well, and made me think about a range of political issues, which I think will make it worth referencing in in years to come, definitely. Um, but Titanium by David Gator has been stuck in my head, <laughs> so that is unforgivable. <laughs> what is the point of a house if I have no kids to put in it? Most of us get so sunk in our own pain we don't notice our children's. But you did, and that makes you a good mother. You all know what he did to me, and yet you still bring me in here and you ask me questions like, why didn't you leave him? But you never ask, why didn't he stop? If you liked herself, then watch I, Daniel Blake from 2016. Daniel Blake has suffered a heart attack and has been told by his doctor that he shouldn't work. However, when he applies for benefits, the welfare system judges him as able-bodied and so he has to go through the dreary process of gaining job seekers allowance. During one of his appointments in the job centre, he sees Katie with her two young children getting angry at staff. Katie is from London and has been moved to Newcastle to gain a council house. She and Daniel form a friendship. Initiated by their contempt for the welfare system, and how they're both treated in such degrading ways. The decision maker's going to be sending you a letter through the post. You're going to have to wait for that, and then you're going yeah, to... Yeah, nobody... my kids have got to start school tomorrow. I've got right. about 12 quid in my purse. Do you know what All I... because you can't just calm down and listen to people when they talk. Right. You all Again, have to do this. Do you know what? I've listened to you. You've created a scene. I think I, you I've need... created a... No, mate. I, I've I think created... If I was going to create a scene, you'd know about it. You need to leave me. the building. I'm sorry, you're okay, you need to... This is ridiculous. Jesus Christ! Who's first in this queue? I am. 
Do you mind if this young lass signs on first? No, no, you carry on. There you go. Now, you can go back to your desk and let her sign on and do the job that the taxpayer pays you for. This is a bloody disgrace. I, Daniel Blake, is the most financially successful film of left-wing filmmaker Ken Loach. In a directorial career spanning six decades, Loach has used his platform to illustrate the inequality caused by capitalism and the inhuman laws inflicted on people at the bottom of society. He made Kathy Come Home in 1966, a film about how a young couple descend into homelessness without any support services giving them a safety net. Fifty years later, Loach made this film, illustrating how the welfare state is not well equipped to help people on the poverty line. I, Daniel Blake, and herself are similar because of their focus on vulnerable people coming together with the help of the community around them. In herself, there is a larger contingent with Sandra's friends and contacts helping her build a safe haven for her family. Daniel helps Katie, and in return, he receives a surrogate daughter and grandchildren. There's more of a sense of a lost community in Loach's film, however it still celebrates how the kindness of strangers can make a huge difference. Sandra's humiliation of working minimum wage jobs that barely feeds her kids is similar to Katie's perils in I, Daniel Blake. Both are mothers who put their bodies on the line just to earn enough money to scrape by. The emotional and psychological hardship they both go through is heartbreaking. This makes the lack of compassion and lack of sympathy offered by the local public services even more frustrating. However, Sandra, Daniel and Katie all have a defiance about them. They fight, they rebel, and even though they might not succeed, they regain their dignity so cruelly stripped away. I am not a blip on a computer screen. I am a man, is a line Daniel writes towards the end of the film. Like Sandra, he has had his self-work stripped away, and both characters, in both films, are on a quest to reclaim their identity. Lefty snowflake, you should be grateful to be a blip on a computer screen. <laughs> In my day, you didn't get anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I've never seen a... I don't think I've... I've, I've never seen a Ken Loach film. Uh, not even a Daniel Blake, which I know was really big at the time. But... I just thought it's amazing that he's made, he made Kathy Come Home. Yeah. And then 50 years later made a film on a very similar subject. And it's like, oh, not much has changed, has it? Yeah, no, oh, yeah, it, it is scary how how that can be the case, or how basically a, a decade and a bit under a Tory government can make things go back to where, where they were in, in 1966. Yeah, well, that's a really good point, because the thing about I, Daniel Blake, is it's a zeitgeist film. Yeah. When it got made, I think the leader of the Labour Party at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, mentioned it and he talked about it. It would have been six or seven years since the Conservative and Lib Dem coalition. And that government and their policies towards people on welfare were just completely inhumane. To yeah. And I think this was finally a film that attacked them because of it. And essentially, I think, over that period of time, with the to- and you know the fact that the Conservative Party is still in power, I think over that period of time, they have targeted people on welfare. And I, Daniel Plake, is a, is a film that is, is it's almost like a, a way to expose that. Yeah, I might seek it out. I think it's interesting. I, I do think it's a good link between herself and, and I, Daniel Blake, as well. Because I think if you're looking... Although uh, herself is a, is an Irish film, and, and I, Daniel Blake, is a, is a British film, I, I, I think there's definitely a kind of stylistic link. If you, if you watch herself and you like the way that the people make films in in this part of the world then going to you know Ken Loach is one of the most quintessentially british directors and i think he's he's been a pillar of um 
British filmmaking for such a long time, which is, makes it even more embarrassing. I've never seen one of his films. I don't know what. Oh, you haven't seen any of his I just films? Don't think I, I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever seen any of his films. Maybe this is going to be a good, like, what have you been watching then? I'm, I'm going to have to, to actually, like, break the seal on that. You know, bust my Ken Loach cherry, as it were. He wouldn't want me describing it like that, I don't think. No, but I think you know when you're watching a Ken Loach film. Yeah. They're very polemical. They're, they're pretty hard to watch, and they don't have a they don't have many happy endings. Do you like him as a filmmaker? I mean, maybe there is a lack of balance you could probably say about I Daniel Blake, like I think everyone working within the welfare system in I Daniel Blake and in the in the courts are kind of portrayed as as evil and pernicious. That probably isn't the case. There probably is more nuance to to it, um and I'm sure they do help lots of people. So, so I think maybe that's that's a slight issue, but I still think it's a true portrayal of what thousands of people has to go through in this country. And yeah, and I think all the way through his career, he's um, he's made films about that. And if you didn't like this, then watch The Babadook from 2014. Jennifer Kent's masterful horror is just what you need to banish the sweet and the optimistic to a dark cellar inside a much less happy home. Amelia is on her way to the hospital, about to give birth to her first child when a car accident kills her husband and leaves her to bring up her son on her own. Several years later, she's struggling. Her son, Sam, is antisocial and prone to erratic outbursts. One night, for his bedtime story, he brings to her a strange book she's never seen before, Mr. Babadook. It talks about a demonic house presence that can't be gotten rid of, and it disturbs the both of them. But now the story's told, things spiral out of control, as the monster might not just be a fiction after all, and as the book says, if it's in a word, or it's in a look, then you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Ba-ba-ba-duk-duk-duk. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Ba-ba-ba-duk-duk-duk. We might read another one tonight, eh? But you said I could choose. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. Mum, does it hurt the boy? Both herself and the Babadook are about women, struggling to build a life for themselves in the wake of trauma and the loss of a partner. But in the Babadook, the pitfall is not losing your children or your world to an unfeeling system. The Babadook is about losing it to something intangible and monstrous. But really, the Babadook is about something just as human. It's famously unsubtle as a metaphor for depression and all-encompassing grief. Herself is about a single mother's struggle against something external. The Babadook is about the struggle against something internal. If the vibe of movies like herself does come across as saccharine, then horror is a good place to unsweeten yourself. And what a horror. It's a masterclass in the creepy and the tense. The jump scares aren't so much jump scares in the sense you have a lot of warning when something is slinking towards Amelia to jump at her, but it doesn't make it any less scary. It's like a waking nightmare. The creature's voice, the sound effects, the way it moves. It squirms its way under your skin and grips you tight until the end. But also, these are two films about homes. In herself, the home is a goal. Something to aspire to. Something to literally build towards. 
The Babadook corrupts the home. What should be a place of comfort and serenity gradually spirals out of control, becoming a pit of fear and danger. Something completely under the control of a malicious spirit, and that's really scary. So if the moving, inspiring story of a mother trying her best isn't for you, then maybe you'll find it more interesting to watch one losing her grip. Try as you may, home isn't always where the heart is. Yeah, that's a really good point about the internal and the external, because there's a pretty obvious metaphor in the Babadook. I think you called it unsubtle. <laughs> uh, Which is a bit mean, because it's great, but yeah, I, it, it, it's sometimes the criticism that I've noticed uh, really big horror fans kind of lump at it. This is a, a bit of a clunky metaphor. You're, you're embarrassed to say that you've never seen a Ken Loach film. I'm embarrassed to say that I don't really love the Babadook. <laughs> I think it's okay. I guess... I found that, yeah, I found that uh, metaphor, yeah, completely... It, it, you just couldn't get away from it, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, yeah, I, in comparison, I, I think I actually felt, in those scenes between Sandra and Gary, I felt more fear then than I did watching all of the Babadook. <laughs> and I guess that's because... Wow. I, I guess the Babadook is... It's not set in reality. I mean, well, well it is and it isn't. How am I going to navigate my way out of this? Basically, the the Babadook is clearly not real. It's clearly like a. It's clearly well, a. It's, yeah, it's like it's it's a mental health issue, or it's a. It's something that is a symbol that is scary. That can be scary, and yeah, there are plenty of scenes which which you, which are really tense, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know where the Babadook is going to come from. You don't know whether the the kid or the mother is going to be all right. And yeah, you're always on edge all, all the way through the film. But those scenes between Sandra and Gary are so terrifying and it just because it it feels so real and it, it that those those are the type of things that scare me rather than that rather than a horror film well i mean there's two things there i mean one is is actually i think that it's a case of herself we didn't know anything about but the babadook i think was hyped up a lot at the time i think you know what you're going in there for mm. and i think the other thing is yeah, I could see how something like being in the in the real world is 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 more is, is more scary. And I and I think that the the reading of the Babadook being a metaphor is it's pretty hard not to read the film that way. But you don't have to read it that way. You can, you can also see it as something yeah, supernatural. I mean, I'm the complete opposite. I mean, the, I think that it's one of the best horrors ever made. I think it's amazing, and I never want to watch it again. Because it absolutely scared the living shit out of me. I, 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 I had nightmares about the Babadook. Like the night after I watched it, I haven't been that way since I was a kid. Like it, it really. There's something about the Babadook which is like such a perfect film to to kind of give me the willies. Like it's just every everything about the the way that it's crafted, the subject matter, the the way that it scares you, really is just perfect for getting into my particular corners and really uh really scaring me which is which is but makes it both wonderful and horrible because i'm bad enough at horror films i'm bad enough at watching horror films but like this you know <laughs> something like this is 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 really scary they manage to convey like just kind of what like what a nightmare feels like like i said i mean the thing that i really honed in on when comparing it to herself was that thing about it being the two different kinds of homes. And the ho- yeah, exactly. And, and I think that is something that I find really scary, that idea that a home could not be a place of comfort, but, but can slowly become something completely out of your control that has been corrupted by, like, an otherworldly force. So it's no, you know, a, a, a house and a home, it's supposed to be solid foundations where you can be completely at peace 
if it becomes a place of kind of unreality where you're constantly being terrified, then I find I, I just think there's almost a kind of sense of like, well, where where else do I go? Yeah. And there is that sense of like in it where we're like, where else is she going to go if she's being haunted by this thing that infects the very place that she calls home and her entire family? But yeah, there is no escape. There is no escape, and that's that's pretty scary. That's exactly what you want from a horror film. I mean, in any way, like you want if you're a director, yeah. you don't want people to go to see it again. It's too much. <laughs> I probably would. I probably would watch it again, but because uh, now I know where all the, the scares are. But I would still probably hide behind a pillow. I think it's really masterful. I don't really mind the the metaphor in it. It's quite obvious, but I think it's. I think it's still very effective. Yeah, and it's wonderfully threaded into the story as well. I'm not. I, I, it absolutely isn't a criticism. I think it's such well made film, and the design. The, the design. I mean, designing horror just... films can. Can often go to waste, really, but the the way the Babadook looks is is incredible. I think they also managed to make a way to use him quite sparingly. They managed to make him, they managed to put him in just the right places and and use him in just the right moments, and then t- and and shift his appearance in lots of different ways that somehow makes him more terrifying. He, it's more terrifying when when he's just a shadow almost, and the way that he like moves and there's just this sound of like kind of slinking and stuff it's like it's even more scary because it does just it just reminds you of something between some kind of like stop motion nightmare that you've had at some point like it's just it's just amazing um but then weirdly for a brief for, but for a brief time uh he became a bit of a an lgbt icon for some reason because uh, I think it started as a bit of an inside joke, I think, because the, the film got assigned in on Netflix to LGBT films. And then a lot of the online LGBT community just ran with it and started to say, like, oh, he, he created a pop-up book about himself just for the drama of it. What's gayer than that <laughs> or something? And, like, his obsession with top hats... They're like, well, that's that's that that's definitely like a an LGBT thing. I thought that was quite funny. I remember seeing someone go to a Halloween party as that, and it must have taken a lot of hard work. It was it was terrifying, it was terrifying <laughs> yeah. to see someone like that in the flesh. Do, you do find it scary then, but it just was still just kind of okay. I find it scary when some fucking guy is dressed like him <laughs> right in front of me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Films Are Better Than People. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now so you never miss an episode. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts and SoundCloud. And don't forget to come follow us on Twitter at Films Are Better and like us on Facebook.com forward slash Films Are Better. <laughs>